Welcome to Imperfect World. I am your host, Christopher Hobson. In this episode, I speak with Gabrielle DeSetta, a scholar working on machine vision, digital media, and related technologies in China. His piece about the Chinese term, black technology, Heikerji, a term to describe futuristic but difficult to comprehend technology, really captured my attention and got me thinking. Black technology is a term that came from Japanese anime and then was translated into Chinese. Echoing the trajectory of concepts like cyberspace and metaverse that move from science fiction into describing real-world phenomena. While the term black technology is common and a bit of a buzzword in Chinese, it is barely known in English. So I thought this was a powerful example of the need to be more aware of how technologies are understood and talked about in different social and cultural contexts. Concepts are prisms that refract how we see the world, and so depending on which ones we pick up and use, they show and reveal different things. To take another example from the conversation, DeSetta explains how in Chinese the term deep fake is talked about in terms of changing faces, which has different connotations connected to it. Our conversation explores important socio-technological themes in the context of China and a basic conclusion is the need to greatly expand our conversations moving beyond Western experiences. For more information, please check my Substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com and make sure to subscribe to the Imperfect World podcast series. I can be reached at info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. challenges with technology is it cuts across everything now and, yeah. and uh, it's I mean I can't remember the quote but you know it's, it's 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 like the quote with war it's too important to be left to the generals like technology is too important to be left to the computer scientists right yeah yeah, yeah I agree <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think it's kind of interesting the way so many of us who are coming from other backgrounds have to end up engaging engaging with this and and I think one of the starting points from for what I'm working on at the moment is simply that if you want to understand the world at the moment you need to understand how it's being mediated and and shaped by digital technologies uh, and then also what type of pathways and trajectories uh, this is you know taking us taking us on and to come to your work, I think this is why it's really interesting and important because when we think about digital technology, so much of the discourse is is centered around North America, Silicon Valley, Western right. Europe. And in China, we have not only the second most important uh, country in terms of technological progress in these areas, uh, also you know, in terms of population, the single biggest market. So what happens in China is going to fundamentally shape where these technologies are going. So I think understanding this 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 world is, is vitally important. Um, so from, I guess, working originally on, on the Chinese internet, what are sort of some of the distinctive 
features of, of, of the Chinese internet or perhaps some points of comparison between uh, the way people understand and interface with the internet in, in China compared to, say, Western Europe and North America? Yeah, um, it's been, uh, it's, it's changed a lot. And uh, uh, when I started working on this, um, it's still, uh, I think it was the, the first years in which uh, discussing, you know, this idea of the Chinese internet was becoming a you know, matter of concern or, you know, defining what it was uh, and how it was different. Um, and I think it was also because in those years, the internet was still more relevant than, you know, social media and then platforms and the platformization of everything. Um, so at that time, um, the main uh, differences that you know people talked about were censorship-driven. So, uh, you know, as in the global internet is free or, you know, it's less regulated or it's more uh, fluid, decentralized. But uh, the Chinese internet is, you know, a national internet or it's, uh, you know, there is the Great Firewall and there are laws every like every year there's new laws uh, more and more, more and more strict uh, laws about what you can post and what you can watch or consume through the internet so that was one of the main frameworks through which people described uh, the chinese internet um and the other one was a more uh, linguistic uh one so you know Yes, English is kind of the you know lingua franca of the internet, but also Chinese was becoming. I think during my PhD, probably I think it became you know actually the most used language on the internet was Chinese because just because of the sheer number of users, at least in anecdotal terms. But that pointed to the fact that there was a large chunk of uh, websites and, and social media websites that. Um, were in Chinese and for a Chinese audience or created by Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese citizens. So, uh, that was another, uh, component of this, of these discussions, but my approach was a bit more critical and was, um, kind of like, you know, questioning this idea of a Chinese internet and trying to disaggregate, um, you know, the linguistic part and the regulation, uh, also by looking at how people use things in practice, uh, including, you know, various practices of, uh, you know, crossing linguistic boundaries, crossing, uh, you know, censorship boundaries or uh, making sense of the internet as a medium. Um, and it was interesting because during uh, the years of my PhD, then uh, platforms became more and more relevant. I mean, WeChat was launched in those years and people started taking it up. Um, so in, in one sense, they moved away from the internet. Um, I mean, of course, everything is still using, uh, you know, internet protocols, but, but it's moving away from the web and it's moving away from, uh, previous practice, uh, you know, previous practices of both creativity and access and, uh, you know, people becoming more sealed into these, uh, platform ecosystems, um, so that has changed a lot as well. And I think today when we think of the Chinese internet, we tend to think about Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And, uh, you know, this like, yeah, pretty uh, huge, massive platform companies that are also tech giants. Sometimes they also make uh, you know, just physical 
hardware or devices or uh, they have massive uh, e-commerce markets and stuff like that. So it, it has changed. Um, and, uh, and I think, as you said, today, the Chinese internet is also about the massive market um, and censorship has shifted from being just you know, a, a tool for political and social control to being an actual uh, force that shapes markets and uh, keeps you know, competition uh, outside of China and uh, you know, promotes a local or indigenous uh, computing and the development of local industries. So the, there's been a shift in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also a kind of interesting perspective where, you know, previously we would talk about this sort of Chinese great firewall and this idea that yeah. the rest of the internet is open and, and China is kind of closed and segregated. And we're sort of now starting move, sort of to become more aware that maybe the internet was near, was never really as global as perhaps we hoped or wanted. And if anything, we're moving in a more fragmented direction. Yeah. And I think also here the platform economies are really kind of interesting because they intersect and overlap then with, with different languages and different cultures. So you've there's there's a point of comparison in terms of you've got these big platform economies, you know, in China, obviously in Japan, throughout throughout the Western world and so on. But then these platforms, they don't quite match up. I think this mm-hmm. is one thing I find really interesting is is the major platforms don't have a direct equivalent. Like WeChat is right. There's not an equivalent of, of, of WeChat in in the in sort of Western Europe, North America. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's quite interesting because they, of course, the the needs and the areas uh, you know for for a capture of different markets are quite similar. Uh, across the world, but how how platforms then uh, develop and occupy them really depends on uh, the individual trajectory of uh, a country, usually or a country's uh, policy and, and and the market there. So and the regulation, of course. Um, so yes, what what it's it's pretty clear that in, in similar things happen in um, in Taiwan, in Japan, in China. But uh, how how platforms divide the market among themselves and which ones are successful really depends on many different factors. Yeah, I mean, regulation might be something uh, we can come back to later because I think that that's also a really interesting yep. uh, question when it comes to, to thinking about China. Um, maybe what we could do is I think given that we're talking about these different spheres of the internet, I guess, and also the way that language cuts across. Uh, We could turn to this concept of uh, black technology, uh, which you've written written about and uh, was what first brought me to to your work. And I was really struck by by this concept. I think it really nicely capsulates the, you know, the way that so much of our terminology and, and ways of thinking and talking about digital technology is profoundly uh, English-based and mm, right. coming out of primarily a North American context. And I found it quite amazing that you have this concept which 
moves in a similar direction, so from science fiction then into describing uh, mm-hmm. real life, uh, but happens completely outside of the English language. And you have yeah. a term which is completely commonplace in, in China. So basically any Chinese person is going to know and understand what this term means. And if you search for this term in English, there's so little available about it online. And so I just find this, this, this one concept, I think, captures something really powerful in terms of this dynamic between what's happening in Chinese and happening in English. So could you maybe, yep. uh, we probably should explain what black technology is. So could you perhaps first explain the concept when we go from there? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so black technology is uh, is a Chinese term. Um, I mean, I, I translate it as black technology. Most people do, but I mean, maybe there's a better translation. But it uh, the Chinese term is hei uh, kaji, which it just it literally means hey is black and kaji is science and technology, or just in general used for technology. Technology. So, yeah, it it is black technology, but. Um, how it is used is that it usually means today, uh, or for the past like five, six years, it has been used to mean technologies that are uh, surprising or um, incomprehensible for the general public, uh, or technologies that kind of uh, a little bit like mystical or point to you know seem to come from the future. Technology is that you know seem science fictional but are actually existing today. So it is kind of a overbroad, non-technical term to describe uh, um, yeah, the functioning uh, of technology and how it is perceived. Um, so for example, uh, you could, you know, people would describe, I don't know, a, a phone's uh, face recognition capability as black technology if it was, you know, substantially better than other phones or maybe it could recognize you from far away or something like that. Uh, and they would say, oh, this, this phone is, you know, black technology. And companies started adopting, uh, picking up this term, and then it became quite popular in China. Um, but uh, so I, I wrote about it um, because I, I found this term uh, quite uh, common and recurring in a lot of uh, discussions of artificial intelligence and machine vision, which I'm researching uh, right now in my current project. But it's something I've always uh, tried to do in my uh, research uh, when looking at China is to see which uh, like which local terminologies are used to describe things. Um, so when I was studying internet culture, for example, uh, there was a lot of discussion about uh, internet language in China. It's called Wang Luo Yuyan, and I, I also found that interesting because you know it's something that was quite different from uh, discussion of uh, online jargon in other places. So I always find it interesting to look at uh, emergent terms and and how they're discussed in in the Chinese press and used in everyday life, and then picked up by companies. So in the case of black technology, uh, what I found is that the term came from. Uh, from a Japanese uh, animation, a comic, and then uh, and then animation, um, and and interestingly, in this uh, this was a science fiction um, narrative, in which this ter- term "black technology" was used to to describe uh, robots and like mech uh, mech 
robot suits and uh, other kinds of like futuristic uh, weapon or yeah technology that was pretty science fictional. And in Japan, in the Japanese original, actually, the term was not even translated in Japanese. Was just um, yeah, katakana. I think it was just written in katakana. Yeah. And uh, so I imagine, I don't have, uh, I didn't find it where it happened and when it happened, but I imagine that in translating this Japanese anime um, or subtitling it for for consumption in China, someone translated this term in Chinese as heikochi, so quite literally translating it. And then um, as it happens, it became popular among uh, anime uh, audiences and then someone started applying it to actually existing technologies in China to describe things. So it's kind of like the metaverse mm. from uh, uh, you know science fiction novel to to uh, Facebook or Meta um, renaming itself. Um, so you see these kind of flows of, of concepts in technology, uh, yeah, in, in science and technology. Um, whereas yeah, science fiction is kind of like pilfered for for buzzwords and useful things. Um, but I think that's what happened. And then uh, now it's so pervasive that there are also critiques in China that say, you know, is it a really useful term when, when everything is black technology? Maybe nothing is. Or <clears throat> now it's been used. You know, I've seen it in, in advertisement for uh, wristwatches and, <laughs> and rice cookers. So, you know, it has become just a way to say this, this, this product is futuristic, but it's not really uh, saying anything relevant about it. Um, and so, yeah, that has been also criticized um, in recent years in China. But it is definitely a, a tech buzzword um, in the local industry. Yeah, one thing I found interesting when I was uh, researching the concept is I came across an article where they were comparing real black technology with fake black technology right. and yeah, yeah. saying that, fake black technology is not making really serious advancements and right. and actually sort of presenting this as being problematic. So mm. the idea that also black technology is, is kind of a way of moving us closer towards a certain type of future. And I think one of the things which is interesting in the concept is the way it's right on the cusp of be between the present and the future. Mm -hmm. So in the original anime, you have these uh, special people who are able to yeah. produce black technology. So it's not everybody. It's a certain subset of, of characters who are able to do that. And then it's technology which, which is completely different from what the rest of society is able to, to produce. Yeah. And then I think the way it's been um, transferred across to Chinese it has this type of valence where it's on the cusp between what is uh, achievable now and what is beyond cutting edge. Yeah, I think uh, it was interesting that in the yeah in the, in the original uh, Japanese manga and anime, it was um, it had this this idea of something coming from the future so like technology that comes into the present from the future and unbalances things and uh, I, I i've read uh, there's a bunch of chinese uh, science fiction uh, texts especially ones that are you know published online and you know, chapter by chapter that that kind of use this concept and appropriate it in a similar way 
uh, I think in one of them, uh, there's the black technology is an alien um, AI or knowledge-based system that the protagonist finds and then, you know, learns about the universe through it. So it's also something that comes from a, you know, distant future um, uh, knowledge that is not among humans yet, but this person can access it and then change things. So I think this uh, resonates with um, an expectation um, that is there in China about the role of technology in ushering a future or, um, or this, you know, uh, this wish to catch up with the West, uh, which is seen as, you know, tech, leading uh, technological advancement for, for a long time. And, uh, and so I think that black technology is kind of a, it also yeah, reflects this um, because it, it, it's a way of saying, you know, if China is able to produce something that is black technology, it means it has caught up with the world or even, uh, you know, moved past that. And it's getting something from the future, something that, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's like more advanced. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting also the way it's often presented in connection to the Chinese project, right? So right, yeah. this is something China is, is doing. And I, I noticed overwhelmingly it was used in reference to Chinese companies and Chinese. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah technologies like you don't I, I couldn't find any reference of it being used to describe technologies being produced outside of China yeah I've seen it in I've seen it in general terms uh, to describe I don't know artificial intelligence for example in general as a black technology but yeah for sure there's a lot of, uh, of articles saying you know these are 10 black technologies that you know China has and you know, or China leads the rest of the world, or this is how black technology makes China, you know, leader in this or that field. Um, so it definitely has this exception of, yeah, uh, national uh, future <laughs> technology, yeah. I mean, I think the other thing which really struck me with, with the concept is the, is the idea that the, the technologies that, that we can't comprehend, which we're now using, uh, but but on one level, I feel like, you know, we passed that barrier quite some time ago. The the smartphones that we've been using for, for years, I mean, the idea that we can break them apart and understand how they work, I mean, by, by that definition, black technology has been with us for, for quite some time. Like, we're really in a realm where we don't understand or can't make sense of a lot of the technologies we now rely on. Yeah, but I think it has, this has been reinforced um, by, by the conflation uh, between you know this uh, general idea of black technology and the rise of artificial intelligence and machine learning, so it, it's being the the rhetoric is that you know you cannot understand how this thing works is also reflecting the fact that there's, there's not, there has not been a lot of education and you know explaining about artificial intelligence and machine learning and actually. Companies want to keep these technologies as you know closed as you know opaque as possible, um, and so that's why, um, yeah, smartphones are probably you know not considered black technologies because as they have become quite commonplace and people know sort of how their way around it, how to hack them and manipulate them. But uh, but black technologies is really um, yeah, it's, it's related to how artificial intelligence is perceived, you know, as a black box uh, also, you know. 
black uh, uh, something closed, sealed off, opaque that you just have to accept the result of and not know how it works, or you you cannot possibly understand um, how it yeah how it works. Yeah, and I mean, I think this this then gets us to a situation where you know, what it means to sort of live in, in in a world where there's we're relying and engaging with so many technologies where we can't fully uh, see or understand uh, their decision making processes, the conclusions that they're reaching, and the more that uh, we're having these type of technologies incorporated into our daily lives. Uh, you know, the, the greater weight that, that these technologies have. Well, I think one of the things I'm interested is is in yeah, drawing some contrasts uh, and so perhaps it could be interesting to talk a little bit about uh, deep fake culture in, in China because I, I know um, from your work the even the language which is used to describe deep fakes uh, is different in Chinese and so much of the discourse in in uh, at least in English is connected to concerns about how it impacts upon democratic politics, but the way that these dynamics are going to work will be will be different in, in the Chinese context. Yeah, that was an interesting case because um, I really started uh, looking into this to kind of intersect my my two you know fields of interest, which which are vernacular creativity, so creativity of users and machine vision systems. Um, and deepfakes sit at the intersection because they are they, they were created by you know someone who wanted to have fun to have fun with videos and, and making up like montages of celebrities and stuff like that. Um, but they use the, the deepfakes use um, you know ma machine learning models that are the same that are used uh, for for doing face tracking and face recognition. And they're just reverse engineered to create a face rather than identify one to. to Put it uh, simply, but um, <clears throat> I think the deepfake case really exemplifies uh, how how we talk about technology uh, shapes uh, the debates that then develop around a specific technology. So, in the case of deepfakes, uh, as you mentioned, it, the English term deepfake is you know was is emergent. Uh, it was created on Reddit. Um, to describe this kind of uh, synthetic media. And it comes from the combination of, you know, deep as in deep learning and fake because there were not real videos. There were videos where the face of someone was swapped into someone else's body. Um, but then this, this name of deep fakes, I think has shaped a lot of the debate around them because uh, they're discussed as you know they're deep, so they can they're not easy to identify. They can fool you know human perception, but they're fake, and so they challenge uh, regimes of truth. And uh, you know they're close to uh, fake news stuff like that. So, and I'm not downplaying the risks, but I think much of the discussion around deep fakes has been centered around uh, yeah the challenge they pose to uh, 
to news and to uh, maybe also, you know, they could become propaganda or they could uh, steer political debates or national security, even uh, harm national security in some cases. Um, so in China, <clears throat> it just happened that uh, the term deepfake was not translated literally and uh, deepfakes in general as a category or a genre of synthetic media were known uh, or came to be known as huanlian, which just means changing face or swapping face. So it's a pretty obvious uh, way of calling them. And um, and I, I'm not sure to what extent this has shaped the discussions, but for sure, um, much of the discussion in China has uh, revolved around the pra practical effects of changing someone's face into someone else. Um, which are closer to uh, concerns for individual privacy um, and uh, image rights and uh, security of you know payment systems that are based on biometrics or, or other you know ways of identifying uh, people, other products that use face identification to to uh, to log people in or to access services. Um, so the there is not you know the concern was not. Was not so much focused on the what, what's real and what's fake, but more about you know what does this technology enable and what kind of risks that is does it uh, yeah create. I yeah I mean I don't maybe I don't want to make too much of this point of comparison, but I wonder if we could also connect this to different ways of thinking about technological advancement and and to simplify greatly. Perhaps in, in the Western imaginary, there's this very sort of strong dystopian flavor and, and concern with the way that digital technologies are, um, you know, uh, impacting our uh, conception of, of what is real, influencing our thinking and behavior, and is, is seen as, you know, in some ways quite a a corrosive uh, force on the social fabric. And perhaps we could contrast that with, with maybe a conception of, of digital technologies in China, which is connected to a, a kind of a, a future of progress and one of tech, where technological development is playing a positive role in society. I'm not sure I'm, if I'm making too much of this. I think there's definitely more uh, optimist, <laughs> optimism around technology in China, uh, that's for sure, uh, especially because of what we were discussing before. There is a bit more of a futuristic uh, edge to the, its imaginary, and uh, there's more uh, hype uh, and still a lot of uh, trust in that, uh, you know, studying computer science will, will make you a lot of money and, uh, <laughs> or make, you know, bring you to work to, in some big company and, and you'll have a great life. Um, whereas, you know, we're, we're getting more and more critical about uh, working in Silicon Valley or uh, a tech startup, uh, probably rightly so. But I, I also think that, um, <clears throat> as I said, the vocabulary shapes a lot of the discussion around technology. And uh, also, uh, there is a more tendency to, to think about things in a more dystopian way. Um, while I think, for what I've seen, that actual applications of technologies are very similar across across both contexts, because just to go back to deepfakes as an example, both in Europe, in the US, and in China, and I don't know, probably in Japan and everywhere else, 
the main application of deepfakes uh, in in terms of uh, you know just just a scope and numbers of video created is pornography, and that's you know a constant. So uh, 90, 95% of deepfakes that exist are made uh, as pornography. They're sold as pornography. They're probably illegal in most contexts um, because they're manipulating videos that are produced. You know. Uh, uh, for a certain purpose, and they're putting the face of individual citizens or celebrities on them. Um, so, uh, you know, the discussions that are then on top uh, of, of this phenomenon, uh, depend. they go in different directions. They're very much shaped by the, the concerns that are prevalent in that society. Um, so I, I think it's quite, uh, it's quite revealing to look at how the same technology is discussed in two different places, and the discussion goes in two very different directions. Because it shows, uh, yeah, it shows what what the prevalent attitudes towards technology more generally are in that place. So, So my follow-up would be: What do you think are some of the main points of concern to do with digital technologies in in China? Uh, uh, You mean for Chinese citizens? Yeah, for Chinese citizens. Chinese Chinese citizens. Um, I think there is, there is, uh, <clears throat> I think now much has, um, changed in the sense that, um, there is a, a overall, as I said, it's like optimism and, uh, engagement with technology and technology is still seen as a driver for future development and for a national, you know, uh, com- competitiveness. Uh, so, um, Overall, I would say there is there is a, an acceptance of technology, and I don't know how how rhetorical it is, but um, I've seen and I see, especially in AI, the AI rhetoric, um, kind of a, a belief that Chinese people are more accepting of technology or more readily accept technology than, uh, for example, people in the US. Um, so the critical edge towards technology that uh, has been developed in, in, in Europe and the U.S. is seen as a kind of a uh, drawback uh, or something that makes China more 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 ready to accept uh, new technologies and, and experiment with them. So, of course, with this come a lot of risks because, yeah, uh, Chinese people overall might be more accepting and ready to experiment with technologies in their, in their daily lives, but... Um, the risks are the same, so it's it's predictable that they would uh, eventually have to come to terms with it. Um, so the risks here are obvious, like pri- for privacy, <clears throat> especially. I think those are one. Of, this is one of the most discussed uh, ones in one in China, also because there is most more space for debating it publicly. Um, so um, ranging from data collection. Uh, private personal information on even just on websites and of course today through smartphones and smart uh, smart city smart home devices um, and the the, the um, pervasiveness of biometric identification systems uh, while it is if not accepted tolerated for security purposes uh, which still you know convince people uh, in China quite a bit, uh, especially in urban settings. 
they're also being uh, criticized and uh, questioned, um, especially when they seem to be not that necessary. So, for example, there's been a lot of pushback uh, on face recognition systems in private, you know, living compounds uh, or uh, public spaces. Uh, just, you know, if, if to access a space, you have to scan your face, then, you know, it's it might seem cool in the beginning, but then people start questioning why a key or a key card is enough uh, if you're a resident. Uh, it has worked for years. Why, why now? Uh, who is pushing to implement the systems everywhere? Um, so I, I think this is one of the, the risks that is most debated is, uh, is that privacy, uh, because other kind of risks, uh, the ones related to surveillance and, you know, uh, the political implications of it, uh, of course, can be discussed much less. So that's why probably we see less debate on that. One thing I, I want to kind of maybe pivot towards, we were talking a bit about this this earlier, but um, the, the sort of the visions of the future that connect into the way that tech, digital technologies are thought about in a Chinese context. Right. And so we're talking a little bit about, um, you know, the way there is this kind of more optimistic uh, perspective. And I think it's also interesting to think about the way that China's technological development is also viewed from outside. And mm -hmm. so I know you've, you've talked a little bit about uh, an idea called Sino-Futurism. Yeah. So could, could you maybe talk a little bit uh, about this? Yeah, um, so <clears throat> that's usually how I start. This is uh, by going back to my uh, my first year at university, because when I started studying Chinese, I remember uh, I think the the dean or some professor just in the first day of class said something, of course, like uh, "Yeah, you know, China is the future," and uh, and one of the main examples was that uh, yeah, we, we don't think. You know, we, we used to think that China was the past or it was stuck in this, you know, developmental past. But uh, if you think about it today, they, you know, they sent spaceships to uh, to Earth's orbit and the spaceship's manuals are written in Chinese. You know, this was like a, a spiel that they used to give students to you know, convince them that, yeah, China was the future. And um, I think me and a lot of my colleagues, we, we just accepted this. Quite unconditionally at the time, we said, "Yeah, okay, sounds you know, sounds reasonable." China's in the news all the time, and you know, there is more and more Chinese products and collaboration and commerce. So, yeah, that's you know, makes sense that China is the future. But then I, you know, I, I started thinking more and more critically about what these meant, especially as I've seen uh, this rhetoric about you know, China and the future play out across the media, news, and portrayal of China, and you know discussions uh, on, on, on TV. And, and um, as I started studying technology, I started seeing how, yes, this idea of the future and technological development played together and how they were intertwined with uh, yeah, the rise of Chinese tech companies and, and more recently with artificial intelligence uh, and so on. So I, I, I did not come up with, uh, with Sino-Futurism uh, as an idea. It's something that's been... Uh, uh, developed in um, kind of speculative uh, philosophical writings in the beginning, 
And then as a term, it has been picked up by uh, contemporary artists and media theorists. Um, and uh, I think Sinofuturism as a term is really, uh, from the beginning, it describes this um, perception, which is mostly uh, articulated from the outside of China, so from a Western or Euro-American point of view. Um, so this perception that China comes from the future or that China will uh, arrive from the future, which I think is a re-articulation of the, you know, China's coming or China's, you know, uh, rising uh, trope. Uh, and it responds to the perception of China's reform and opening up uh, um, period. It responds to how uh, China's kind of reason on the world stage uh, at the end of the past century, millennium, and beginning of this new one. Um, so the, 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 this idea of China being the future um, it's kind of a development of this uh, or a response to to the presence, increased presence of China in our discussions about, yeah, world economy, technology, and things like that. And what I found interesting is that these, uh, these idea uh, is, is, is very easily mapped on a similar response to, to the rise of Japan <laughs> uh, on the world stage or, you know, in, in, the world's economy and tech development um, in the 80s. So th there were very similar responses to uh, to Japan. Uh, when they started with, you know, uh, panic <laughs> and a combination of uh, panic uh, and uh, awe and, uh, and then quickly became uh, summarized or, you know, expressed through this uh, cyber, cyberpunk, cybernetic uh, science fictional representations of Japan that then fed back into, uh, into Japanese culture and were, you know, developed there and science fiction, anime, manga, and, you know, popular culture. And so today we, we, we assume that they've always been there, but uh, that's not the case. You know, Japan has not been always portrayed as a you know, futuristic, uh, high-tech nation. That was a specific uh, moment in time. And, um, these have survived, you know, the various economic crises that Japan has went through. But um, today we see the same uh, being done with China. So, yeah, uh, of course, local tech companies have all the interest in, in being in China being portrayed as a you know, place of, of black technology and a place of uh, great tech development and adoption. But there is also a, a huge uh, effort and a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of words being poured around this and, and imaginaries being constructed about China being the future, and and you see this not only um, yeah not only in contemporary art or in science fiction, but also in uh, popular media like science fiction movies have started using China as a location, and of course it's you know urban development is a great stage for that uh, because of how you know it looks like uh, the the ideal futurist city of uh, of contemporary capitalism. Yeah, I mean. I find it a very, being in Japan, I find this very interesting because there's, you still find people who are quite determined to apply these type of futuristic tropes to Japan. Right. And you, you end up in this very weird kind of futuristic nostalgia where, in you know, often you have people come to Japan 
to look for a certain vision of the future that existed in the 1980s and has since failed to materialise, but that vision is one which is evocative and then it becomes nostalgic, like for a point in time when that future seemed like it was possible. Uh, I... I'm a big fan of South Park and I think the, the, the latest South Park episodes really hit something fantastic with their depiction of the future where, you know, in 20 years time, we're almost at the end of the pandemic and everything is basically the same except it sucks and right. corporations are a bit bigger and there are cameras everywhere um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the rest of life is pretty similar. <laughs> Yeah, sounds, sounds like uh, China, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and so you sort of end up, I think you have this really interesting dynamic uh, between past, present and future. Because I think also one of the reasons that you have this vision of Japan and now also the vision of China is not only does it extend forward to the future, there's also this very strong sense of these are cultures with very strong historical legacies and very strong conceptions of their past, which determines this kind of grand trajectory right, uh, yeah. they're on. And, and so you end up with this different sort of temporality in, in how these countries are viewed. And I feel like what was, what was understood of Japan in the 80s, yeah, it's been extended to China, also South Korea as well perhaps to a lesser extent with, with Taiwan? Uh, well, for sure, there's been, uh, well, for sure, China has a strong, you know, today has a strong national uh, nationalist uh, bent. And, uh, I mean, the government has all the interest in uh, pushing this idea of uh, you know, 5,000 years of history and, uh, you know, highlight uh, this continuity or, you know, reinforce it. Um, and, uh I mean, the case of Japan is, uh, I guess, has been the same. There is, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of anthropology uh, has contributed to this, especially, you know, wartime anthropology in uh, lending uh, a lot of uh, mystical or, uh, or legitimizing a lot of uh, discourses about, you know, nations, especially East Asian nations, uh, confusion, heritage or imperial legacies or, you know, dynasty uh, histories of yeah, thousands of years. So <clears throat> I think, yeah, this really uh, plays out in, in terms of um, fixing <laughs> the temporality of, of Eastern uh, locales, uh, which, you know, is quite common in, in, in Orientalist uh, depictions. But uh, w- one point I made is that the, uh, the classic uh, Orientalist uh, tropes about about Asia, often, yeah, looking at the past or talking about tradition, how these places of you know long traditions and or at best today combine tradition and innovation. That's, that's a common thing, right? Um, but uh, but things like uh, these more futuristic imaginaries of, of Japan or of China or you know the four Asian tigers in the nineties uh, tend to uh, kind of. Uh, essentialize these countries from the point of view of the future. So saying, you know, these are not, they're not stuck in the past, but somehow they're stuck in the future. And as you said, 
you know, the, this future uh, at times fails to materialize, as in the case of Japan. Um, for China, we don't know yet. Uh, so, you know, of course, the wish is that uh, people living there get the best future that they, they wish for today. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Mm. Um, well, maybe as we, as we move towards the end of our conversation, one of the things which I'm really hoping to do through these discussions I'm having is, is to reflect more about how technology is, is shaping our own engagement with the world, uh, also thinking about how perhaps being more aware of, of the way that digital technologies are impacting and shaping our own behaviour and, and thought um, can maybe lead, lead to a better way of, of kind of living and engaging with the world. From from the work that you've done, uh, looking looking at China, looking at looking at the role of technologies in the internet, there, what are some lessons or some reflections maybe that you've taken in terms of how you think about technology and how it's shaping our world today? I know this is a big question, um, but I'm just curious for how you've taken <laughs> this on, how this how you've taken this on in terms of your own thinking and acting in the world. Yeah. Um, I think there, there, there are some uh, general observations that have kind of sedimented um, and coalesced as I, you know, as I did research on different things. Uh, one would be that uh, there's, uh, it's important to understand how any technology, you know, whatever is, is visible, to us as users or consumers or researchers. So whatever we engage with, be it a platform or a device like a smartphone or automated car or whatever, <clears throat> is, is always the end point uh, or a gateway to uh, much broader infrastructures that are often invisible. And so, yes, I think it's very important to do research on the consumer user side uh, of things, but I find it. I've always found it uh, productive to also look at, this, at the broader systems. So uh, that's why I'm very interested in infrastructure. Uh, this whole you know, discipline of infrastructure studies um, that really helps. Uh, yeah, seeing what's uh, what's under the hood and what's behind you know the the, the screen and the the, the interface. Um, that's been one interesting and very useful strategy. Um, a related one uh, is that, and it's quite it's something that has surprised me and keeps surprising me, is how much, uh, in spite of you know all the discussions about U.S. versus China and, and you know, trade wars and uh, Chinese technology or Western technology and Asian East Asian tech uh, companies and nations, behind these there's always uh, a lot of collaboration both in terms of commercial, but also research development. Uh, and, and, you know, yes, AI in China are competing uh, AI superpowers or whatever. But then when you look at, uh, you know, who's working at these companies, who the computer scientists are and where they study, they're, first of all, they're from all over the world. Uh, and they're, you know, and they're Chinese computer scientists who study in the U.S. and then work in U.S. companies and go back to China or, or the other way around, uh, you know, American, European, African, Indian, um, Southeast Asian, 
uh, computer scientists who were trained around the world and, and study work in China for Chinese companies and and collaborate in writing uh, papers about you know the same computer vision systems that then are used in in, in cameras to monitor people in the U.S. and to monitor people in China. So, <clears throat> you know, beyond, beyond the obvious national implications and competitions, there's a, there is always the, these worlds of science, uh, research, and technology development that are, you know, have their own dynamics. And these are also, I think, quite interesting to look into. Yeah, we've, we've kind of got this cosmopolitan and national layers uh, on top of each other. Yeah, yeah, and and, and uh, maybe a third thing that I uh, that has always sort of guided me, and I kept I keep um, realizing how important it is is to look at uh, practices uh, as a starting point and entry point into this you know large technological systems and into this uh, you know uh, yeah systems of science uh, research and development because. Yeah, there is practices on the side of users um, that are often disruptive of technology. They're often reconfiguring how technology is used. So yes, you you know, technology might be closed, closing up. The platforms might all be hiding, uh, you know, AI systems behind the hood and black boxes and everything. But there's always practices of users that you know disrupt what technologies are intended. Uh, for or finding new uses and applications, and on the other side, there is also the practices of uh, you know computer scientists and engineers and developers that are you know a fundamental uh, to understand how things are created and shaped, uh, even in, by the industry itself. So, so maybe yeah, these are the three uh, three main things that I always guide. Yeah, my research. No, I mean on, on, on that final one, I think yeah, the way that technologies uh, are used and then develop in, in ways that, that don't actually match with their original intent is, is yeah. such a powerful one because it also points to, you know, the the potential consequences that especially come as we rely on more and more of these powerful digital technologies. We, we yeah. really often underestimate the ways that they can be used and applied and um, one of the things I'm, I'm kind of constantly reminded of is the way that reality and um, human behavior constantly outstrips expectation. That was my conversation with Gabrielle DeSetta, recorded in March 2022. It has been produced with the support of a grant from the Toshiba International Foundation and was edited by Peter Van Hosen. Please subscribe to the Imperfect World Conversation series and check other episodes. For more information, see my website, ChristopherHobson.net, and my Substack, ImperfectNotes.Substack.com. My email is info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Imperfect World with Christopher Hobson.